Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's conversation, we'll cover two topics. First, the growing economic angst in China, and if countries like Canada are ready for the potential consequences of a real Chinese economic crisis, including the flight of capital in search of safe haven. And second, we'll return to the subject of so-called Indian residential school denialism and growing calls to criminalize debate about the history of the school system and its present-day consequences. David, thanks as always for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Let's start with China. The news is marked by growing signs of economic challenges in the country, including shrinking factory activity, high youth unemployment, and stagnant and even declining consumer spending. At a high level, what's going on? Um, China has suffered a trap transition, as Chinese economists call it, where they can't quite make it into a first world economy because making it into the first world would mean liberating consumers, letting people keep more of their money, letting them spend it on themselves. And that would have essentially political effects that the Chinese Communist Party can't accept. So what it is trying to do is to take money from consumers, trap it in captive financial institutions, and then funnel it into ever more intense investment. And after a while, you run out of things to pave. So they ran out of things to pave inside China. They created this Belt and Road Initiative, which was an essentially, well, what if we pave Central Asia? What if we pave Africa? But the returns on those investments got worse and worse and worse. And eventually this investment-led model stalls. And the refusal to allow a consumer-led model means that you're trapped and the transition is trapped. So China is now heading into a kind of deflation that probably will last for a very long time and that will confront the regime with the choice. Economic reform will require political reform that the political system currently finds utterly unacceptable. And so they will accept economic stagnation instead. Hmm. Yeah, let's stay precisely on that point. Because as you say, David, many economists believe that these signs point to a new era of much slower growth for China over the coming years. Past growth rates of as much as 9 or 10% are no longer attainable. We'll talk about what these developments mean for the global economy in general, or in Canada in particular, in a minute. But let me ask you what it means for China itself. There's been talk in the past, as you well know, about the so-called Tiananmen Compact, in which the Chinese public accepted limited political freedom in exchange for rising living standards. Why don't you elaborate a bit on what happens if that compact is indeed broken? Yeah. Well, look, I don't want to portray myself as any kind of authority on what goes on in, inside China. And the repressive capability of the Chinese state is obviously very great. And living standards are much higher than they were within living, living memory. So I, I suspect that many Chinese still feel they have a lot to lose from rocking the boat. But I don't know that the 9 and 10% growth rates were ever true 
because what they were doing was they were making investments without regard to return. That's what happens when you have state-led investment. In the end, it what it is concerned with is the appearance of economic activity, not the actual making money on any particular apartment block. The statistic that's batted around is there are more empty apartments in China right now than the population of England. So that gives you a sense of the scale of this. And China obviously needs places for people to live, but they built the apartments in the wrong places because local party bosses dictated how and where the investment should go, not markets based on where people wanted to live. But I I would say if somebody said, you know, with your limited knowledge, make a prediction, I, I don't see revolutionary activity in China. But what I do see is intensifying discontent, intensifying aggression, and the regime then flirting with the question, is external aggression a good way to distract the public mind? And in this way, the Ukrainians may have done the whole world a service by reminding the Chinese authorities, you know, external aggression can fail. And when it fails, that price is even worse than the price of internal repression gone bad. There's been a lot of commentary in the West in the past several years, including increasingly on the right, about the efficiency of China's form of state capitalism or whatever one calls it. Did the country's economic woes reflect a failure of the Chinese model? And if so, why did so many in the West get it wrong? Yeah. Well, look, people, a lot of people who make these arguments are driven by their own psychological needs. Like the people predicted peak oil uh, mm-hmm. a, a decade ago. Many of many, by the way, the people who predicted the peak oil, or at least one, Patrick Deneen, you know, the uh, famous inquisitor advocate, <laughs> who's now a big advocate of the Chinese model, was a dozen years ago predicting that no, it was peak oil that was going to doom the Western world. They want the Western world to be doomed because they basically they don't like the model around them. They don't appreciate its achievements. And so they are always looking for some external factor that is going to vindicate their pessimism about their own society. I think, I mean, I have always been influenced by a book that was written now 20 years ago, called literally called China's Trap Transition by a Chinese economist, Min Shin Pai. And he never gave a date, but he, he predicted that exactly what would happen here, which is the state-led investment model, the accumulating inefficiency of the investments eventually brings the model to a stop. And at that point, the regime faces the choice. And and his pessimistic prediction, and written in 2004, was that the regime would change stagnation over reform. And that looks to be exactly, exactly what happened. Can you talk a bit, David, about the role of nationalism in this political economy story? To what extent will the Chinese regime seek to galvanize a sense of nationalism in order to protect against some of the political risks to itself that we've been talking about? Again, I don't want to go beyond what I know because I don't speak Chinese and I don't follow their developments closely. Playing with nationalism is risky because, for one thing, it creates a quote-unquote right to the right of an authoritarian regime. This is what happened in Russia. And a lot of that is controlled opposition and permitted opposition. But the the audience doesn't always know that the wrestlers, the pro-wrestlers are fake. And you can stoke opinion. And then the regime can, because it cuts itself off from good sources of information. It can trap itself into adventures. And that's the story of the Argentine uh, generals attacking the Falklands when they were in trouble, of the Greek colonels in 1974 starting a war in Cyprus when they were in trouble, Putin and Ukraine. There are many, many examples of this. And you know th- that kind of external aggression by an authoritarian regime that looks powerful just because the de- surrounding democracies aren't willing to pay the price of doing something about it. 
runs into the problem that if you make a big enough crisis, you do motivate the British to respond to the Falklands. You do motivate NATO to respond to what Greece is doing in Cyprus. You do galvanize Europe against Ukraine. So yes, they will try to, they may try to do it, but it's hazardous. It's hazardous at home. You create a political right and it's hazardous abroad. You create enemies. One more question before we move to the global economy and how countries like Canada ought to think about some of these challenges in China. At the risk of one more speculative question, does a Japanese-style period of stagnation increase or decrease the probability of some kind of Chinese attack on Taiwan? Well, it's not Japanese-style stagnation. Japan did not stagnate until it reached first world standards Mm -hmm. of living. And Japanese stagnation has been terrible if you are a stock market investor. But if you're a typical Japanese person, you know, the past 30 years have been pretty sweet. The cost of housing has, housing has become much more affordable. Deflation means your savings remain valuable. And I, I think anyone who observes Japan or encounters the many, many Japanese who visit the West say, these do not seem to be people undergoing hardship. I mean, the, the society may have lost some of its dynamism and creativity and excitement that it had in the 1970s and 80s, but it's a pretty good place to live. And, and they have not as generous as Western European style social welfare system, but they've got enough. You you can, you get sick, you go to the hospital, you don't get bankrupted, you get old, there's a pension, you need savings in Japan, the pension alone won't be sufficient, but still there's something. And the roads work and the police work and the courts are fair and the air is getting cleaner every year. You know, it's a, it's a different story. This is, if, if Japan had suffered a trans trap transition in 1964, it's before you make it to the first world, before people have some kind of safety net, before they have sufficient consumption, before you can deliver environmental improvement. So I, I don't think that there are comparable situations at all. And Japan also made the bet, um, was forced to make the bet after the Second World War of making itself acceptable to its neighbors. And Japan's partners all regarded Japan's problems as shared. No one was um, predatory toward Japan as its growth rate faltered. And there are lots of places for Japanese capital to flow in productive ways to generate returns for people at home in a world trading system of which Japan was an honored part. Let's turn to the global economy now. China's above average growth, of course, has been a key source of global economic growth for the past decade or longer. What does it mean for the global economy, David, if China's economic trajectory normalizes or even worse? I want to talk very specifically about Canada, because Canada has been linked to the Chinese economy in a couple of, in two probably most important ways, dozens of ways, but two especially that stand out. One is that Chinese growth has created a huge additional supply source of demand for a lot of the things Canada sells in the world, minerals, grain, agricultural products, even when you don't sell directly to China. That you are that the, the Chinese demand has transformed the world market, and and so Canadian suppliers have been buffered, and I think this is especially true for a lot of the mineral suppliers and potash and a lot of the sort of the the, the basics that that go into the very beginning of the production process. A lot of those suppliers have enjoyed a market in, w- in which as. Europe has matured as an economy, as the United States has matured. There is this growing the, the people who need all the nickel they can get. That may be about to stall, and that's going to be one effect. The second effect is Canada. Canadians are very aware of Chinese investment in Canadian real estate. One way to think of this is countries like Canada are importers of Canada and exporters of the rule of law. Like, you know, why why do you want an apartment in Vancouver? I mean, it's a beautiful city, but there are worlds full of beautiful cities. What is it that's so special about Vancouver? And the answer is no one will take your apartment away from you without a trial. 
and a, a fair trial in which you have representation. No one will confiscate your bank accounts without due process. So Canada is, has been selling rule of law to people who may care about that so much, they don't care very much about the return on the apartment. So there are people who are buying up these units in Vancouver and Toronto and saying, so you tell me that if I pay you $100 today, I will get no worse than $85 back in 20 years, but with no risk of being executed or confiscated or thrown arbitrarily in prison. That's that's a good investment. I'm making my money somewhere else. I'm saving my and save, save, saving my money here. Canadian universities have been major exporters of educational services to the Chinese upper class. It has already become a lot harder to get money out of China. So that means less capital export. That means fewer tuition payments. And so Canadian universities, Canadian real estate sellers are going to be in a very different kind different sellers of different kinds of Canadian safe financial assets are going to find that one of their major consumers is suddenly not able to bring the cash to them in the way that it was five, eight, 10 years ago. Hey, Hub listeners, there's a lot of gloomy news out there these days when it comes to the state and future of Canadian journalism. We're seeing mass layoffs across some of the country's biggest media organizations. We're seeing news disappear from some of the country's biggest social media platforms. Well, what does this all mean for the Hub? Well, thanks to you, our loyal readers and listeners, the Hub is thriving. We're seeing record engagement across our various platforms and offerings, adding new voices, series, and content, and all of this would not be possible without your support. If you haven't already become a donor to The Hub, consider doing so now. For as little as 25 cents a day, you can make a major contribution to our ongoing operations and our ability to be a credible and authoritative alternative to much the mainstream media. Make your donation now at www.thehub.ca. What does this all mean for Canadian policymaking? How should Canadian policymakers be preparing for such a possible Chinese economic crisis? Well, I, I think Canada needs to be thinking about, as we've talked about before, a generally less permissive world than it's enjoyed for a while. So Canada needs to get ready for a world in which labor scarce, interest rates are higher, and flows of capital from China are less and demand from China is less. And all of that is going to create, it's not a crisis for Canada, but it just means that in the, in the 2010s and especially under the Trudeau government, not to blame Trudeau, especially, although I think they've been a little casual about all of this, but the environment has been, there's been a lot of room for Canada to do dumb things. And when there's permission to do, when there's an ability to do dumb things, you know, dumb things will be done. And I, I think the world of the 2020s and the later 2020s is going to be a world in which there's a lot less room for a country like Canada to do dumb things. Labor more scarce, capital more dear, flows from China less, demand from China less, generally a less permissive environment. It's, it's, it's going to be something of a, not like a shock, but just, you know, Basically, Canada has been for the past 10 years partying like a 21-year-old. And from now on, <laughs> Canada's going to have to party like a 38-year-old. <laughs> you can still party a little. <laughs> but that that next morning, do not be planning on the 10K run the next morning. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. One final question before we move on to our second subject. It, it takes on something we've talked about in the past, which is the tendency to bet against the West in general and to bet against North America in particular. Talk a bit about 
the causes and sources of that pessimism and the reasons why it's ultimately wrong, and including in light of what we've just been talking about. I, I wrote an article uh, two years ago for The Atlantic based on a lot of research. This is not something I know a lot about, but I talked to experts called China is a Paper Dragon about Chinese military capability. And one of the things I pointed, I, one of the things that really stuck with me that I didn't point out, it was pointed out to me, is that the, the, China pervasively falsifies statistics. And one of the statistics it falsifies is how much training do its, how many hours in the air do its pilots spend? And no one really knows the answer to this, but probably an American pilot gets 10 times as much flying time as the Chinese counterpart. So look, the air is a more dangerous place with missiles and with drones, but just like the quality of what is provided in a democratic system with accountability, because in a democracy, they're just, it's just littered with journalists and others who are there to catch you in a lie, not because they love truth so much, but because they want to embarrass the government and, and, and they can embarrass the government without fear of punishment. And so they want to know, are, when you post the hours that your pilots fly, are those hours true? And there's someone who cares about that question and will catch you if it's not true. Whereas in China, if you publish the truth, you can get into a lot of trouble. And so that lie and many others go unchecked. And uh, the system doesn't even understand itself what its weaknesses are. As the, as the Russians found out when they invaded Ukraine and discovered how much Putin thought he knew how much stealing there was in his army, and he was wrong. So what the desire to sell short Western liberalism as a source of strength, that, that's been a, a pervasive thing. That people, Authoritarian regimes project an image of strength, and people sometimes for reasons of gullibility or reasons of ideology take that at face value. And they never see the tremendous latent strength that democracies have and of creativity, of, of dynamism, and of military power. And democracy is, above all, a mistake-fixing system. The, uh, democratic countries make mistakes all the time, and some of them as bad as anything the Chinese have done, the subprime crisis in the United States, a pervasive mistake. But markets were free enough to catch the mistake and people were free enough to talk about the mistake, that the mistake could be corrected, and we hope nothing like that exactly will happen again. But there are people who want to believe that the West is doomed, that democracies are doomed, because they like, there are, there, there are a lot of reasons that people are attracted to authoritarian models. And so they sell those models and take advantage of the freedom of their own society to do propaganda for people who don't deserve to have propaganda done for them. Counterintuitively, that's a good segue to my uh, next question. But before I get there, I just want to say, David, that we're approaching 40 uh, of these bi-weekly conversations. And I think if you put a through line, all of the different subjects and topics we've talked about, I, I think you've just summarized it beautifully that liberal democratic capitalism, notwithstanding its flaws, has shown itself to be capable of standing up against all of these other models that come forward. And it looks like, based on some of the evidence we're increasingly seeing out of China, uh, it may prove itself once again. But as I say, I want to wrap up by returning to a subject that we've previously discussed, which is growing calls to decriminalize so-called Indian residential school denialism. It's back in the news this week because the federal advisor on missing children and burial sites has said she met with the new justice minister and pressed him to add denialism as she describes it, to the criminal code. Her rationale is that denialism is violence, including, quote, email, telephone, social media, op-eds, and at times through in-person confrontations, unquote. Why do you think this idea continues to find airtime? And what, in your mind, is fundamentally wrong with it? Well, it's very consistent with what we've just been talking about. So the sad things, uh, the unfortunate things, the 
sometimes life-shortening things that happen at, at residential schools have been much discussed in Canada since 19, 1990s. But beginning about 2015, a story was told about these schools that was in many respects false. And I think many of the people involved in promoting it knew at the time that substantial parts of the story were false, that mass graves were not mass graves, that unmarked graves were graves where there had been markers, the markers fell down, the graves looked like mass graves because the bodies had been buried too shallowly and the ground had shifted and the bodies were pulled together. Many of the claims were just were based on mistaking animal remains for human remains, all, 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 all that story that is well known. But a, a lot has been staked on a story that is not entirely false, but substantially false and mass exaggerated, an exaggerated way to criminalize Canadian history. Flags were lowered, Canada days were canceled, a vicious libel of genocide was applied to the country and accepted by weak and faithless leaders of the country. And as the story unravels, the people who raveled it in the first place are not going to give up so easily. And so if you can't, this is a classic John Stuart Mill moment. Why do you suppress free speech? because you worry that you're going to lose the argument. And as the people have told this story in the form it's been told since 2015, not just a story of tragedy and good attention's gone bad and high death from disease, often the worst deaths occurring before 1930, before the tuberculosis bacillus was identified and before anyone understood why people got tuberculosis in the first place. Um, burials that were, because the ground was hard in Saskatchewan in the winter, were not deep enough and crosses that were made of wood rather than stone. All, that, all of that story that was true and known in, 19, in the 1990s and known forever. The effort to accelerate the story after 2015, it's unraveling. And so the project is punish the people who say that we didn't tell them the truth, because if they say we didn't tell the truth, the truth, a lot of Canadians will figure out we didn't tell them the truth. Yes, indeed. And maybe just to close, as you said, one of the strengths of our system is its ability to correct past mistakes and make progress. And it seems to me, one of the inherent challenges with these calls for criminalizing speech about these issues is it stands in the way of that corrective function in, in our democracy. I want to add one more point to this, and it was something you and I have discussed before. That there has been some research done that at least in the province of Alberta, and this is probably true in many places, since 2015, the average life expectancy of Native men and women has gone down by seven years. That's the result of the opioid epidemic. That's the result of COVID. It's a horrific human tragedy. Life expectancy is down seven years in the span of less than a decade. Now, nobody intended for that to happen, obviously. People wished it didn't happen. But governments made policies that had the effect by putting, not enforcing drug laws strictly enough, putting a lot of cash in individual, converting a lot of the grants to native uh, reserves into individual payments so people had cash to buy the drugs. The, the policies had the effect that some people could have predicted of causing this catastrophic collapse in life expectancy. Is that genocide? No, people would say, of course not. It's just it's a bunch of mistakes that added up together to a human cost. So I would ask those who were part of the making of the policy that has led to the collapse in native life expectancy since 2015 to think maybe they're no better people than the people who were there in 1890 or 1930. They're coping with the same problem. They're doing the best they could by the light they had, coping with a difficult problem that's not working out successfully for them as it didn't work out for their predecessors. And let's have some mercy to each other because the mercy you deny to your predecessors in office will be denied to you by your successors in office. 
Well said, and a good point to end today's conversation. David, I want to thank you for joining me for another one of our episodes, and I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. 